0: Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. On today's episode of Credit Hour, one of our favorite guests, USD Law Professor Frank Palmersheim, returns to speak about retirement, living in the moment, and shares some of his poetry. Professor Palmersheim, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Nice to be here. Good to see you, Michael. It's good to have you back. You're one of our favorite guests, obviously.
1: Um, What have you been up to? Well, as you know, this is my first year, uh, although I don't particularly like the word uh, of retirement. But, you know, I have status as an emeritus, emeritus professor, which gives me some office space here at the law school. So basically what I'm doing is, I think, trying to find like a new balance or a new direction in the kind of things that I do. I still serve on a number of tribal courts. So I still have tribal court justice work. Uh, I still do a little bit of teaching. Actually, next week I'm going to be back in criminal procedure filling in for uh, Professor Ortiz, who's going to be out of town. I continue to do some teaching in what is called the OLLI program, the OSHA Lifelong Institute. So I like to keep my hand in in teaching. I like to be doing that and continue to do some uh,
0: writing and stuff. And, of course, we've arm-twisted you into helping us with our moot court problem next
1: week, so you're also doing that. We don't let you stray too far. Well, yeah, doing some moot court judging, both for uh, straight-up moot court folks like yourself and uh, the Native American Law Student Association group, they're participating in National Nelson Mukort Court, and we're doing some practice rounds uh, with them at, uh, as we speak. Yep, yeah. Josie Blair and Josie Johnson are two Josies in the yes. 2L class. I've so. christened them the Josie Sisters, a new native country band. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, so, I mean, I, I've got to ask, you know, do you miss teaching then? Are you excited for the
1: new challenge? I mean, how how has that process gone for you? Yeah, I mean, I miss teaching in terms of <clears> – <throat> Just speaking, going into class, Uh, some of the bureaucracy that increasingly surrounds teaching these days, I don't really miss. I still do a certain amount of speaking and stuff. So speaking to people, students and groups, I still definitely uh, enjoy doing that.
0: You know, have you found that being retired has influenced um, your writing or your poetry at all?
1: Well, I have a slightly, you know, I'm pretty early into it, more time to uh, focus on it. I've also been thinking about trying to come up with a new long term kind of writing project, and I <clears throat> have some ideas floating around that I'm starting to explore, and we'll see if they materialize into an actual writing project. Now, do you have anything, I guess, to share? You've,
0: you've, we've done this in the past where you've kind of shared some poems for us. Do you have anything today that you'd sure, like to Sure,
1: I do. I have a <clears throat> new chapbook coming out, hopefully later uh, this spring. And the name of that chapbook is called Buddha, Why Buddha? And it's the, the Buddha Correspondence, Volume 3. And I might start with the thing, because people have asked me over time, like, what is the Buddha thing. Why do you use uh, that particular metaphor or vehicle? And so this is my answer to that question. Buddha asks, why Buddha? Because he is wise, yet foolish, holy, yet secular, engaged with this world, yet not engaged with this world, intense, yet indifferent, eternal, yet transient, he embodies both solitude and community, a relative who was also a stranger. He is laconic, attentive, funny, and humble, a celebrant and elegist, welder of moments, and stonemason of residue, birds on his shoulders. And maybe I'd read one or two uh, poems that are, might be in the chat book or? Yeah, sure. Uh, one is, although this might be broadcast afterwards, <clears throat> you know, Valentine's Day. I think today is February 6th or 7th. And <clears throat> so um, this is Buddha's Valentine. Love is the moment, longing the hour. As uh, a short poem called Buddha's Ode to Nature and Spirit. Hawk on a fence post, grace in the air, then gone, back to patience. What was your first Buddha poem? Do you remember what
0: it was specifically?
1: I kind of do. I, I think it was, um, of all things, Buddha and Tina Turner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and i forget where that poem actually came from it just occurred to me and i <clears throat> wrote it and i think it appeared in one of my earlier books and it was just in the back of my mind about well how would Boodle kind of fit with tina turner and the poem actually try to make a case that they actually do fit i think tina turner herself is actually a buddhist so after the fact so i kind of coming together that way and then i never planned on the buddha thing being like the main metaphor or style that i was using but i've been satisfied with the results people have come to i think really appreciate the, the buddha poems as a group you know i Periodically, usually send out a mailing each semester with two or three Buddha poems the Buddha Fall Triptych and sometimes the Buddha Spring Triptych. And the response has been quite nice to those. I mean, my Buddha mailing list is approaching like 500. And so I think you're on that list. Michael, I am on I guess, that list. So. Um, that's interesting
0: to me. I mean, so how much about Buddhism, I guess, did you know when you started kind of writing? This poetry, or, or did this force you to maybe take a like better look at it as you started to use Buddha as uh, such a central figure in your work?
1: Yes, I, I think so. I, I'm not a Buddhist. I am not, <clears throat> as a former teacher, if I was being graded on my knowledge <laughs> of Buddhism, I, I don't think I would be at the top of a class. I might be <laughs> in the middle someplace. But for me, Buddhism represents certain things which may be, Not the whole thing, and I'm sure it isn't, but for me, Buddhism is the notion of paying attention. It's like a very critical element of Buddhism, as I understand, to be mindful, to pay attention, that every moment is eternity. And for me, that's like a powerful kind of notion. And also that eternity is in everything. It's not just in grandiose things, in sublime things, but it's in ordinary things like doing the dishes and stuff like that. And so for reasons I couldn't quite explain, I found that and do find that kind of an attractive way uh, of thinking and trying to write Buddhism also has a close affinity with the notion uh, that that suffering is an important part and inescapable part of what it is to be a human being. And I guess I kind of believe that. I wish it wasn't so, but that element of Buddhism is very uh, attractive to me. It's also that suffering is indemnity. Endemic, but it's also fleeting in a way. And so all those things for reasons I couldn't quite explain because I come from a Catholic background (laughs) uh, about how that kind of fits together, but somehow it's provided an opportunity for me to say things that I did want to work out in poetry, and they seem to have been able to connect with other people. And so I've kind of liked it, so to speak, and have stayed with it.
0: You know, the metaphor of, uh, being able to find, you know, value in sort of the everyday tasks. I, I've read that somewhere. If you can't find enlightenment in doing the dishes, you won't find it anywhere. And I've, I don't know why I've always, I don't know if I read that on an Alan Watts book or something, but I always kind of stuck with me. You mentioned the idea of suffering and Buddhism's, um, I guess, conception of that. And, you know, it, you make it as a joke, but obviously that kind of conflicts with Western values of, of suffering. Um, Have you then used, I guess, poetry as a vehicle then to deal with trauma that you've had in your life? Have you gravitated towards this as an art form to deal with that? Or is it more, I guess, rational or objective when you sort of write poetry?
1: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I guess I'm not perfectly sort of coherent in it, but I find poetry. I think uh, Robert Frost defined poetry as a momentary stay against confusion. I find that like a powerful notion that one of the functions of art in general, I believe, and poetry in particular, for me, is that it, it, it's a way of bringing order, even to the most difficult kinds of situation. It might involve suffering, might involve pain, might involve disorder. I think there's something about poetry when you can organize these very painful, uh, hurtful, entropic uh, things into, at least momentarily, a coherent kind of statement that I find for myself very, very helpful. Um, It's not a conscious kind of thing I do, but it's just like... You know, in the Buddha poems, uh, anything is subject matter, you know, something, some glancing thing or something that I read or something I might be experiencing or something that someone tells me or someone I see in the context of students, in the context of my children who are all adults now, those, those kind of things. And so, yeah, I think that's why poetry remains very, very significant for me and It's hard to explain, you know, also being a lawyer and a justice man, how all those things kind of go together. I'm not sure how they do, but important to me. Well, do you have another poem? Sure. Uh, This is one called Buddha Speaks with Two Sisters in South Dakota. And these two sisters are uh, my daughters, Kate and Hannah. They're both adults now. So Buddha Speaks with Two Sisters in South Dakota... Take your gifts of art and spirit, braid the sky with paint and prayer, walk the prairie arm in arm all the way back to the beginning. And this next poem is a poem actually for my son, Nicholas, who's uh, approaching 40 and Uh, I guess the title kind of speaks for itself. So Buddha speaks with his son in detox, solitary. Dad, your voice means so much to me. It brings me back from the dead. So those are kind of in line with what I was just saying in terms of as a person in this world as a person with a son as a person with two daughters you know sometimes you don't know quite how it works but there are things that you see that they're doing you know things that are good, bad, uplifting troubling and sometimes without planning on it, I didn't sit down to write those poems about uh, my daughters and my son, but they just at some point kind of occurred to me. And whenever I feel <clears throat> sort of a phrase or an impulse that links to something, I try to respond to it. And you know, when it works, you have something that you're willing to to put out there. All the other stuff just goes in the goes in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that that makes me wonder,
0: how often do you start a poem and then stop halfway through and go, oh, this is garbage, and, you know, crinkle it up and throw it in the wastebasket?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't count, but uh that definitely is mm, uh, a fair question. I think for me, usually, I, I start with some <clears throat> image or, or phrase that is usually related to something I've experienced, and <clears throat> You know, I'll just keep it in my head, or if it occurs to me real early in the morning, I'll get up and write it down, and I'll just see if <clears throat> enough other stuff comes along to put something together. And sometimes, you know, it's a subject of judgment, I guess, for me about whether it works or doesn't work. So, you know, when I feel it does, I'm, I'm happy to at least put it out <clears throat> to friends and people I know to see if it kind of works for them. And sometimes it just doesn't or sometimes you know you think you have something and I wouldn't rush to ever put anything out and maybe go back to it in two months three months six months and second time around third time around it just doesn't work whatever whatever that means you know? um, how often does it just
0: come down to like a single word
1: uh, sometimes you know because these poems by design are, are quite short and sometimes um, you know, it, you can just tell that it. it kind of works, but, you know, there's one word that, you know, you feel <clears throat> doesn't quite fit, and because it doesn't fit in a poem that might have no more than 25 words, one word that doesn't fit or work, <clears throat> you just hesitate, and hopefully it you know it comes around or sometimes you try to think of related words or if it's a word. occasionally I use rhyme, whether it rhymes and rhymes in a way that you want it to work. Um, you know you have to partially uh, trust your instincts in the doing of it, then you have to trust your reflection after some time has passed to be able to, to judge whether you think it, uh, whether you think it works or not so. Do you have any
0: additional poems for us?
1: Yeah, uh, I have two or three more. Okay. There's a poem called Buddha Writes on an Envelope about Emily Dickinson. Now, One of the things to know, she was well-known for writing uh, a lot of her poems on envelopes, so that's kind of an allusion to her. And it's kind of, you'll see when you hear it, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but here it goes. Buddha writes on an envelope about Emily Dickinson. You know what I love about sex and Emily Dickinson? The intimacy of implication, the vertical slanting horizontal. Well, now I feel like I have to ask what do you write your poems on? <laughs> well, I, mean, I write, it's an interesting and fair question. I generally write them initially on, because um, they're shortened on yellow stickies. <laughs> yeah, because usually when, because uh, I you, rarely do I actually sit down at my desk or a desk and say, I'm going to write a Buddha poem. You know, I'll just be thinking about things and. Oftentimes, particularly when um, at home or even at the office, if something occurs to me that looks like it's going to go there, um, I have yellow stickies and I just write down the word or phrase and then just see, you know, if it's going to keep coming and get something or not or come back to it or work and cross it out and that kind of thing.
0: When you write a poem... What's more important to you, I guess, sort of the rhythmic, uh, almost like aesthetic quality of the way the words sound together, the meaning, is it obviously just a balance of the two? I mean, how do you configure that in your head?
1: Well, I think it's a balance of the two. I mean, I have to be honest, I'm not a trained poet. I am not a master of many formal uh, forms of poetry. I guess that's one of the things that has attracted me uh, to sort of the Chinese and Japanese, the the haiku form, and oftentimes just working with a particular image with a minimum of grammar that, when it works, it conveys a certain kind of picture or a snapshot involving a certain kind of little motion or motion within a person. I think that's in some subjective way that I kind of strive to do that and for people who who read them that that gives them something to in a sense I guess work with to see if the way I've said it, how it connects with them and whether they have the same kind of aesthetic and or emotional responses I did when I wrote or whether they see something different that leads them in a different direction or it's something that doesn't connect with them but for me the notion of particular kind of images <clears throat> with a minimum of grammar to go with it uh, <clears throat> leaves a lot of opportunity for uh, for the reader and <clears throat> in terms of how I think and what I've heard from people uh, over the years—that's that's what I'm striving for. Yeah. Do you have any last poems for us? Yeah, I think I have two um, two more here. Uh, the first one. <clears throat> It's called Buddha at the 9-11 Memorial. I think, as you know, I'm from uh, New York City, and when 9-11 happened, I was teaching at the law school. I was out of communication with my family back home, which included my parents, who have both passed away since, but lived out on Long Island. I had a dear aunt who lived in New York City. I had two cousins who are referenced in the poem, who were nurses, who were involved in triage at 9-11. And so... This tries to capture uh, from both a personal and a slightly more distant view uh, about 9-11. So this is Buddha at the 9-11 memorial. Iron workers, long blue sky, birds in migration, the towers on 9-11, nurse cousins working triage, how time passes, but doesn't, Six to you, welds, never forget, across the dark night of your soul.
0: You know, I have to say, I remember, because I think you came into one of our classes and read this poem on the last anniversary of 9-11, and we had another professor who um, I think was either in New York or living in New York at the time, um, and I'd also spoke about his experience um, that day and I remember as a little bit of a non-traditional student I mean I had formed a adult id by the time that September 11th 2001 occurred I think I was in eighth grade um, and it was interesting to I guess listen uh, to both you and I think it was professor Mackey talk about um, the impact that that event had on their lives uh, to a group of students who, for the majority um, were not conscious for that event and I I just remember going home that night and thinking you know that it, it just was interesting to me that the shadow that this event you know casts on everyone's life whether they're conscious of it or not and you know the sense of urgency I thought that you and the other faculty member had, you know, trying to make these kids understand, (laughs) you know, that this was a historical, you know, life changing event for so many people in so many different ways. I just remember being struck by the things you learned in law school that aren't necessarily related to the law, but, um, yeah, that was a memorable yeah. day. Well, I,
1: I remember coming to the class and reading, <clears throat> I think this was one of the poems, and I read another poem. And in the other poem, uh, I was trying to put together because I felt as a New Yorker who's now lived in South Dakota more than half his life, it's just like, well, how does South Dakota you know, actually fit in the context of 9-11? because it's so far away, New York is so urban and sophisticated and South Dakota is so rural and not sophisticated. And I don't know if you remember any of that poem, but what I was trying to do was to see how they fit together. And ultimately, I think I wound up using the metaphor of the tall grass Mm -hmm. prairie Being like Twin Towers And at least for me as the writer That was Or or was a Symbol or uh, A metaphor that helped me In my own thinking to connect the two And that's one of the things About poetry generally Uh, I think it was a, A poet by the name of John Crow Ransom who defined poetry As showing us the connections Between the apparently Disconnected and I think that is one of the forces uh, <clears> of <throat> metaphor and poetry to show us connections that before hearing them or reading them in the context of poem, we didn't actually think that those things were connected. And in a small way in the poem, I'm referencing the notion that there really is a connection between the Twin Towers and the tall grass prairie is something worth kind of thinking about or holding out. Know. Well, do you have one last poem for us? One last poem, and it's a fairly recent Buddha poem. And it's called Buddha's Hymn to Trees. Buddha's Hymn to Trees. Downward hunger for earth's embrace. Upward yearning for its grace. Seeds disperse to find their place. I like that one. Well, thank you. I think there's been like a resurgence in the thinking uh, about trees and how important they are. There's this wonderful novel called The Overstory by Richard Powers, and there's all this scientific literature about how trees are not really isolated that they actually form communities and you can demonstrate it scientifically how somehow they uh, warn each other or try to provide food to uh, their brother and sister trees who aren't <clears throat> making it and to me it was just like an incredible you know kind of revelation uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> live over on uh, 200 forest you can drive by it Michael has some wonderful trees there that until fairly recently just like trees, but now I see them in a completely kind of uh, different way. Uh, no, that's one of
0: my favorite parts about living in Vermilion is um, walking along the riverbank amongst the cottonwood forests. And, you know, you just see it at different parts of the season, and whether it's, you know, when the cotton's falling on mm-hmm. you, you know. Love those nights kind of, you know, like a sunset in the summer or um, sometime in the fall when, you know, the trees start to crack overhead a little bit and it feels just spooky like it's Halloween. Um, Just the environment that this place provides I've always really appreciated. You know, I don't think people most people realize, but the um, Missouri River along this stretch is really kind of one of the last, you know, untouched um, stretches, uh, you know, that hasn't been you know, super developed, and so it really is a gem in South Dakota. It's a national, considered a national park, and I know that the Vermilion community has done a great job the last few years, especially of building some trails, um, so people can go out and you know experience um, a walk right along the riverbank. It's really really cool.
1: Yeah, it's kind of related to what I was saying before in terms of paying attention to where you are. You know, on one hand, you you could see the Vermilion is a small town filled with gas stations and pizza joints and that kind of thing and that is true and you need to pay attention to that but you know it's also situated as you're indicating in the context of the Missouri River or just outside of town a bit, Spirit Mound, I mean there's a lot of Important historical and cultural uh, places right you know right in this area, and I think it's helpful for students to uh, for all people but students in particular to uh, to pay attention uh, to those things. I think sometimes we oftentimes get siphoned off too much into what it is we're actually doing you know that oftentimes students become Just students, I think, and they don't pay enough attention to the other things that are going on in their lives and in the community. And I think that's an important thing is to keep our awareness of everything that's kind of happening as much as we can.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting idea to me. Um, And I had a conversation with a good friend of mine not too long ago about the idea of being sort of present in your surrounding and how that affects one's happiness. I think that is difficult for students in particular, especially when everything is focused kind of on the next step, right? And so it is a difficult, I I think, way to manage your life um, when so much of what you're doing is, is geared towards something in the future. It's hard to stop and smell the proverbial roses, I guess. I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I I think it's true. I think the notion of balance is an important one. I mean, we live in a society that is very uh task-oriented, very competitive, very intense, very oriented towards success, you know, for law students. You know, there's a lot of pressure uh to do well, to get the good job, and all those things are not unreasonable or wrong, but, you know, you have to have, again, it's a word I oftentimes come back to is sort of a balance, like what else is important in your life? Like when you're here at the law school, I would hope as a teacher and just as a person, students work hard, you know, they come to class ready to go and see what can actually happen, but there's also sometimes you have to have sort of a bigger a bigger screen, a bigger way you're thinking about things. That life is uh, is bigger than law school. You know, you have to have a sense of balance and proportion about who you and your family and your community fit into some kind of bigger uh, picture.
0: You know, for the students who miss having you in class. Um, I guess do you have any wisdom for us that you might leave us
1: with before we depart here uh, well i wisdom's a heavily freighted kind of word but but I think the notion of um you know paying attention you know it's kind of a recurrent kind of word that we 've used through this uh you know having confidence. That you can do good things in this world, I think that's an important thing. It's not whether you get the best job, however that's measured with the most prestigious firm, is that the, the sense that you know in the law, you know have confidence law is a vehicle for doing good things in this world. I think that's important wherever you might find yourself practicing to believe that what you're doing helps to add to uh, good in the world. And I think one of the most important attributes to that, to all of us, is to have hope, you know, to have hope that good things can happen. You know, I think we're at risk in our national politics and the world as we see it, that oftentimes hope seems to be kind of in short supply. I don't mean naive hope, but uh, hope that wherever you come from, whatever your family's like, your faith, your community that you believe, and have hope. That good things are still possible in this world. That's a measure. <clears throat> that's a measure of Buddha. I think if you call me, Michael, and you <laughs> get my uh, my voice message. Well, uh, <laughs> I know not to email you, so <laughs> I, I think my voicemail says something to that effect. of- be- Buddha believes that there are still good things to be done in this world, and I think that's an important message for mm, all people to continue to have because there, are like, there are like really wonderful kind of important good things happening that don't seem oftentimes to be newsworthy in quotation marks these days. And I I think we don't want to lose sight of the good things that uh, are happening and that we can contribute to.
0: Um, Well, thank you so much, obviously, for coming on our podcast today. But more importantly, thank you so much for the impact that you've made in my life. I've really appreciated it. I never know how many more of these podcasts we're going to get to do. So if this is the last one, I've enjoyed kind of getting to, uh, I guess, interview you about some of your poetry, learn more about how you've done it. But more than that, I mean, last two years, you've just had a big impact on me. And I know the same is true of so many other students here. And I just... Very much appreciate it. So, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. <clears throat> I really feel a sense of kind of gratitude because one of the things about teaching. Uh, is the notion of community and engagement. You know, you feel like when you really are in a community and engage your students, you know, going back and forth, that's when I think the most valuable learning actually takes place, when um, the teachers engage with students, students feel kind of the the same way. And I think that's an important and helpful kind of thing.
0: No, and for me, I think it's the difference between just learning – the black letter law that you need to recite on a test and the difference between being inspired to use that, like you said, to try to do something good for the world. So I know a lot of us are motivated and inspired by the example that you've set. So,
1: well, again, I appreciate that. The thing to remember is that, you know, one of the things in, cause I was thinking about this quite a bit this summer when I was teaching in, New Mexico, and gave a talk down there. I think one of the problems sometimes in law school is <clears throat> that we emphasize the law per se itself, the message of the law, which, which we need, but we don't emphasize enough the messengers. That's what lawyers are. That's what the kind of things that do. You, you carry the law. I mean, yes, you know it. You have to memorize the black letter <clears throat> rules. It doesn't come to you automatically. There's a lot of hard work. But eventually it's delivered by us as people and you as a messenger. And I began to think and play a little bit with that metaphor that lawyers are messengers as well as uh, people who say what the law is and how you carry the message, how you deliver it with precision, with um, compelling logic engagement, that makes all the difference. So sometimes when we keep reading cases, I don't think we pay enough attention uh, to the messengers who spoke those words. And I think it's important for, uh, for students to keep that in mind. Now, I appreciate that. I'm also going to use that excuse
0: the next time I get called and I haven't read the case. So I, pre- <laughs> I appreciate that as well. So thanks well, again, Professor. All right. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota listening is 100% of the grades so we hope you enjoyed the episode